Hello. And if you can hear music that continues to play after that intro, it's because my neighbors are pretty much the worst and have taken to just <laughs> playing like loud. I don't even know what what subcategory. It's like kind of uns uns music, but somewhere between uns uns and I want to say reggae. And they start playing it about <laughs> two in the afternoon and play it until like nine in the, the evening. Techno and reggae. Yeah, I feel like that's just going to go on the entirety of summer. Like now that the weather is good and we can go outdoors, we won't want to because that's what's happening. And that's competing. That's coming from like three houses down and then like two houses down in the other direction. Somebody's got like a really strong belief in God and they want to share it. So they're kind of um, playing like, I would say like, maybe african-american gospel style music it's quite like joyous but like if you listen to the words it's really really into god like it's really like he is wondrous <laughs> he is found so there's like these two options and honestly i prefer the god stuff like from the sound of it but my god we were just thinking we we're going to start playing britney spears like toxic on repeat to try and compete with their stuff just to show that hey maybe it's not super nice for all of your neighbors to always hear all of your sounds all the time <laughs> hello this is plants and pipettes <clears throat> the podcast that we try to record in the most <laughs> difficult of situations yeah um, um i'm tegan i'm joram and my personal and struggle i like to complain <laughs> my personal struggle today is that i just um brought my baby son to bed and that just made me so tired. I actually had quite a bit of energy <laughs> left for uh, at the end of the day. But the, if you're like in a darkened room, like humming um, little tunes or like singing like lullabies um, at the end, he's not asleep yet. Like my, my wife had to take over and um, I'm drowsy now. <laughs> so I'll try. I mean, to they do say like if you have young children, when your children are sleeping, you should be sleeping as well, right? Or at least when you have a baby. So maybe that's just the sign that you should sleep now. Yeah. Lullabies, lullabies are designed to also make parents fall asleep so that they can get <laughs> their sleep on. No, I'll try I'll try to stay awake for the next hour and a bit. Um so yeah, apart from your na uh, noisy neighbors, anything cool happening in the last week of being stuck at home? Well, not really. I mean, this last couple of days have been really a struggle. I've been like in a little bit of a um mental slump as far as mood, which is like not ideal. Um, I think now we have a bank holiday tomorrow. So like on Friday in, in the UK, it's it's a public holiday. Um, Same here in Berlin. First oh yeah? time and only in Berlin. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so I might go and try and get some sun. But it's it's been, I don't know, I feel quite shitty um, and stressed about things. And then I'm having that feeling of like when you say, oh, I feel shitty. And somebody says, oh, it's not that bad. This person has it worse than you. And you're like, that's legitimately the least helpful thing that can ever be said to anyone in any condition of shittiness yeah. like let's work on that guys classic whataboutism <laughs> uh, i just saw that on our twitter as well that um <laughs> yoram's been involved in this thread talking about like um <laughs> women in in science and whether men should have like training to not harass women in science and then somebody was like okay but like what about just general don't be a dick training which is not wrong, but I mean, also, we can't just like all pretend we're colorblind or genderblind and therefore think there's no problem. Like, I mean, for me, the biggest thing I noticed when I was going in the academic science world was that a lot of men just didn't think that they were being sexist. They just like, it wasn't enough to like tell them to not be dicks because they didn't realize they were being dicks. They just thought that they're, they're yeah. random comments that like, Germans are better than non-Germans or women are not as smart as men were, were not sexism, was not like xenophobia. It was just like a neutral comment that was objectively true. So, 
Yeah. 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 It was um, weird. It was weird to be suddenly like somebody out of this like bubble of fragile dudes um, must have liked or retweeted something, and suddenly like where not a lot like half a dozen of weird dudes who were telling me how men have it harder than women because of like well, that, radical feminists. That guy That guy was mostly constructive, but then one guy immediately put on there. I just saw it like now that, um, well, actually, it's really unfair for men because they get treated like they're pedophiles. Because, I mean, this is actually a problem that like male teachers often get suspicion if they're teaching young kids or like if males are involved in childcare, people think, oh, why do you like kids so much? And it's true. That is sexism that works against men. And that does suck. But again, when women are telling you about the situation that's happening against them, don't turn around and say, oh, yes, but this one thing happened to me as well. And it's the same for any, like, minority situation. If somebody's saying, hey, I was discriminated based on my race or my sexuality, you don't be like, well, sometimes it's really hard to be straight, guys. You just don't understand the pressure. And I'm like, because it's it's not it's your time to talk. Like, never respond with to somebody else's problem by saying, well, actually, sometimes I also have a problem. Like, yeah, especially just in, don't do that. <laughs> especially in this thread where it was purely about, like, issues in the academic system. And all of these, like, <laughs> fragile dudes uh, who replied, they completely derailed it or try to derail it i just immediately muted them um and usually i'm very against meeting but like, no, like today i'm just not in the mood for this like no whenever i see somebody <laughs> with like less than 100 followers and um like a nonsense bio that oh are my goodness suddenly you're sizest that are suddenly like stepping in from the sidelines no this is just like the simple like um simple statistics that you can see like how likely somebody is just like a troll where it's it's just mm. no point of discussing anything with them if i see somebody who has like a certain reach or who sort of has like people respect them which means that they they follow them um then sometimes a discussion might be worthwhile although i i, I think more and more like these things you can't productively discuss on twitter um But uh, if it's just like a random with like 14 followers who like steps in from the sideline and is like, well, actually, radical feminists make it very hard for men, so I can't take my chemistry class. Um, then I'm just like, this is in no way constructive <laughs> to anyone. So I don't yeah. need to spend time on you. Um, so yeah, that was like, luckily, like, I know that in this case, it was like just, a very small like my... glimpse into this bubble. and But I'm already fed up with it, so... I'm very I think that's like happy. just general I mean Yoram and I generally disagree on this like I am not pro blocking people but I think like for me the message is if somebody tells you something like oh I'm having a hard time because of this discrimination or I'm worried because of this reason or whatever just like I know you want to respond that you also have hard times and maybe you even think that that's your version of sympathizing but that's just never ever going to be the right response to tell somebody like oh yeah my life is also hard like just be like oh i'm sorry like yeah, yeah. like <laughs> no just yeah yeah it's uh, it just don't <laughs> it doesn't help like let just believe me it really doesn't help <laughs> it's really not great yeah. yeah um yeah apart from that um i my only thing that happened really this week is like first of all i got a haircut and i feel like a human being again um that's really good like the hairdressers opened again this week and um, I sat there today with my mask on and the hairdresser had a mask on. We didn't really converse, uh, unlike you usually do it at the hairdresser. It was a little bit awkward, but at the same time, just so happy that my hair that got way too long is now properly cut. I was like, I was really close to just taking um, a, a shearer, like a bus cutter and just like going to like five Yeah, I'm personally disappointed that you didn't get a 
a COVID cut or like let your beloved do it or even better let your what, one-year-old son try to get get at you with the shear <laughs> it's like this is the job that my son did uh, another <laughs> that time would be yeah yeah and i learned a little bit how to sew and i will continue to learn it i'm t taking a class and it's really it's really fun it's really relaxing to just like yeah not think about much just like learn how to use a machine and the different stitches and like how to deal with jersey and so on so that's cool i did last weekend i also did some sewing i made myself a wrap skirt um which was kind of a nice thing to i don't know it's it's again that thing which I liked doing a lot when I was doing my PhD because you have this kind of, you put effort in, input, output, you put effort in and you immediately have something that you've made. It's the same with baking. Like you do something and you get a result and you work with your hands, which is really satisfying and you feel proud of what you've done, which with experimental biology is you are working with your hands, but often you put input, 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 and you don't get the output. So this is like, I actually think a ton of experimental scientists also bake or have these like little yeah. like crafting hobbies just to like finally see that <laughs> it's not them it's some just the nature outcome, of science yeah. 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 yeah like i think um i've heard that some of them like the most stressful jobs you can have is where input doesn't equal output which is one of the problems with with research right like yeah. with um yeah. experimental science yeah yeah and uh, the I see you have a correction. Yeah, I have just a mini correction of a common friend of ours um, from Israel. You know who I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> he, he contacted me about how we were joking about all these uh, weird flavor names last episode when we talked about coffee and the sensory testing that they did um, where they had like um, Chinese medicine oh, yeah. and, and names like this. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and he just told me, I think we we mentioned it last week, but I want to stress out that um, we know that these things are names that are defined in a sort of catalog of flavors. So mm. Chinese medicine has a specific flavor attached to it, even though it might sound ridiculous um, as a sort of lay person. But um, for people who do sensory testing, they know if there's like a certain taste, the taste has the name Chinese medicine and for all of the other weird things that we had in this list. Um, I and just want to stress that. We mock because we love and we don't really think it's like we don't want to yeah. um, insult anybody and their profession. And we're happy for you to mock plant science if you want to. Um, we're the first ones to mock plant science. <laughs> yeah, please reciprocate and like mock the hell out of plant science. Um, and we like coffee. Actually, I gave up coffee because I was drinking too much coffee. But yeah, um, I'm, I'm we're pro those fruity, hazelnutty, Chinese medicine, scorpion flavors or whatever the hell it was. For coffee, I'm on a sort of sinus curve. It's always a time where I drink a lot of coffee and then a time where I take a long break of, from coffee. Right sinus, now, Sinus, like it goes up the, your nose. On a, like a sine curve. Like, mm. yeah. Not first language. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> shut up, Tegan. <laughs> anyway. I think the polite way of saying that was like, shut up, Tegan. <laughs> anyway. Uh, um, okay. <clears throat> speaking of shutting up, would you like to continue with, your, with our favorite plant? Your favorite plant. favorite plant do you know that thing where you like look up the favorite plant but you realize that you really didn't practice how to say the latin name i mean it's not that anybody um, on this podcast expects us to to do well on latin names i think we butcher them right. every single time i'm gonna say it's a hard c pistachia lentiscus 
So pistachia is um, actually the cashew family, and this is kind of a um, flowering plant. And pistachio lentiscus has a very special um, use, which is that it makes mastic. Have you heard of mastic before, Yoram? No. No. Okay, so I think that I was first exposed to mastic by my grandfather when I was very young. Um, he had like a small plastic little baggie that, I mean, in retrospect, looks a little bit like a drug baggie, um, <laughs> which had this kind of um, semi-crystalline substance in it. And he said, so my granddad grew up in Egypt, that's the background. And he said, hey, this is um, natural chewing gum. It's what we had as kids. And like, it was really exciting. And he gave a piece to my sister and a piece to, to me. And we put it in our mouth and tried to chew it. And we're completely disgusted by the experience because... Um, it's kind of a hard resin, and when you do chew it, it does start to soften, and it has like a little bit of flavor, but not, I mean, compared to what we're used to with artificial flavoring of mint or like a bubblegum flavoring, it's it's pretty much what you can imagine by, by sucking resin. Like, it's not really... Yeah. Um, the ideal thing so yeah mastic is this this resin so it's basically kind of the sap of um the the tree which then kind of hardens um and it becomes like kind of brittle and translucent but then you can chew it again and it becomes a bit more like um opaque again and softens up again and it becomes this kind of chewing gum substance it looks like drugs and i'm looking at the picture and it looks like it totally looks like drugs crushed up i don't know whatever something you would smoke maybe like crack yeah i don't know so <laughs> yeah um it, it basically looks like that um you can also use it as a spice it says so mastic can be used to flavor things um like add it in cakes and pastries or probably more importantly put it into alcohol um to give it the flavor mm -hmm. um but i think the most famous thing is this mastic chewing gum which as i said like it's a thing but it's not great <laughs> at least not in in um my experience um, yeah, so what I wanted to say about it was basically that it is, it's kind of like amber. So it's this, this resin kind of sap stuff that comes out of the tree. It's grown on, um, Greek islands. Um, so it's called Chios Tears, um, as a nickname, this, these resin globules, drug globules, because it's grown on, um, the Greek island of Chios most famously. Um, and yeah, mastic is kind of this final product that people are chewing, and I found that quite interesting because I was looking at different, like, chewing gum and where it originated. And so in ancient Greek... In, in hell, ancient Greece, it? it? It didn't originate in hell? I'm, I'm not a fan of chewing gum. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can live in Singapore. I think it's it's banned there, right? Yeah. I w um, <laughs> yeah. So then I was looking up kind of chewing gum and I was like, okay, if it used to be this mastic thing what is it currently now made out of? And of course, now it's made out of like artificial rubber, basically. Mm -hmm. But there was a whole lot of different um, chewing gums in different origins. So in um, the Mayan culture in Central America, they had a different tree that's called chicle. Um, the Chinese chewed ginseng plant roots. Um, the Eskimos chewed blubber, which sounds, I mean, meaty. Um, some South Americans, of course, chewed cocoa leaves. Um, there's betel nuts from India and South Asia. And of course, like tobacco leaves chewing um, in the kind of the, the US area. So there's this kind of, um, yeah, habit of chewing things, which I think makes sense because it's probably also has um, an effect of keeping the saliva moving and kind of cleaning the teeth almost. It might be this, um, I mean, I'm, I'm 
don't quote me on this scientifically, but I think that kind of has a, a reason behind it. And so um, from that, I also wanted to give a shout out to this really awesome series that I remembered about from, from years ago. It's called How It's Made and it's on Discovery uh, from Discovery UK. You can find it on um, YouTube. And when I was looking at this this chewing gum, I remember this this episode about bubble gum. And it basically shows how the modern products that we consume now are made um, by the mechanical process. So all of the different um, factory parts working together to get this product in insane ways. Um, and I can also recommend that. So I'll put the link of that in the bio. But quickly back to the plant. So the plant um. is called um, Pistachia lentiscus. And it's basically famous for making really bad i would say chewing gum but one of the the original <laughs> like the original forms gum. of chewing gum um yeah but i would say then it's like it's the proof that not only do we eat plants and we we also um clothe ourselves in fibers and also build shelters but also we chew them yarn yeah um plants one more use <laughs> one more use finally uh, um, <laughs> yeah i, I yeah the, the thing as you said that many cultures sort of developed chewing gum i find that very interesting um i know that it, it has some calming effects on people um, and some like focusing effects maybe there's something evolutionary behind that that we like mm. if we just chew like mindlessly that, um, that we like a cow that it helps our brains certainly doesn't help it's that mind. freudian oral obsession thing right like of having <laughs> something in your mouth and it's like he's stuck in the oral phase like there's obviously something wrong with him maybe it's yeah. that um, yeah. But it says um, here, chewing gum has existed since the Neolithic period. So there's like seven, 6,000 year old chewing gum made from birch bark tar was found in Finland and it had like teeth imprints in the chewing gum. So it's, it goes way back and basically every different culture had their own trees or plants or, you know, whales or seals or whatever the blubber was from <laughs> that they were chewing on, which I think is, is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, we'll put some pictures to the mastic on the on the show notes <laughs> or on the website. Yeah. Diversity in the place. Science. Um, this week it's me um, presenting you a researcher um, of non-white male status and uh, is origin the right word in this context. Anyway, I'm presenting you Harriet Margaret Louisa Bolus. Um, uh, she lived from 1877 to 1970, uh, and she was a South African botanist. And the thing that stood out for, for me about her was that she is the woman, woman who named the most individual plants um, in, in the world, in history. She named 1,494 oh. different plant species, more than any other women, woman in the world. Um, uh, now I forgot the number who was the second best because um i first looked up the the second place in the list and then i sort <laughs> of was like, like not good enough i want to know the first no, no, place ma maybe i will Ridiculous. i will present her as well because she also did some cool things but i wanted to talk about this list <laughs> but she wasn't the best <laughs> uh yeah not in this in this respect probably in other respects <laughs> um so she harriet Mag uh, harriet uh, bolus she um studied the plants in the cup region and um uh, in the what now in the cup region in south africa around the cup cape of good hope um mm -hmm. She was of a British descent, which uh, brought me to research very briefly the history of South Africa. And um, mm. because I thought it was Dutch the whole time, but no, it was first Dutch 
occupied and then British occupied and then there were constant wars mm -hmm. and didn't turn didn't go for the better in my opinion and also a uh, lot of apartheid <laughs> yeah yeah um and yeah she was from British descent so she was also uh yeah I I, I tried to find if she was a racist and I couldn't find anything oh, so that's why I included her because yeah I don't want to just present people you don't want to promote a racist a racist um, or a colon colonialist who I mean there, there's some problematic things about um like people from British descent being the ones who name all of the plants in the country in in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to assume that she at least got some sort of white privilege or colonial privilege going on there. Yeah. Um, and she might have had some ideas that were common in her time, but non ideal. I mean, it, it's it's always possible, right? But yeah. Um, she was a very uh, decorated um, researcher. She was member of the Council of the Botanical Society of South Africa. She was a founding member of the Wildlife Protection Society, a fellow of the Royal Society of South Africa, the Linnaean Society, and the Southern Africa Association for the Advancement of Science. And she started working in um, the lab of uh, a researcher, uh, I think Henry Bollis. I just um, wrote down his last name, Bollis. Uh, she married his son. That's her husband? No. Oh, okay. She married his son, her and that's where she got her name from. And she took over his herbarium, and she became, in 1903, she became the cur curator of the herbarium. Um, and until her retirement in 1955, she was the curator of this uh, specific herbarium and um, she contributed a lot in um, yeah the data in there and in the species she identified. She mostly worked on uh, Ericaceae and orchid orchids, um, mm -hmm. published a couple of um, papers in botanical journals but also in like popling, po uh, popular gardening articles. Um, there's a book uh, about it's just called the Book of South African Flora. That's a, a pop for a popular audience um, that she contributed to as well. And there's um, some genera uh, named after her: Bolusantos and the species Geyserisia Luisa Bolusiae <laughs> uh, are named in her honor. But mm -hmm. when I researched her, I found this paper um, called uh, Fewer than 3% of land plant species are named by women, um, an author mm -hmm. gender study over 260 years, published in PLOS One uh, in 2015. And um, we'll link this as well. And it's just interesting to see there because now that I have it open, I can tell you that the second place has 677 plants named. Um, and then all the others are in the like uh, mid to low hundreds while the top mm. 10 list for the men um the top do you want to guess how many species the best like the men with the most species named named wait what was henrietta's top uh, she Harriet's had top, uh, sorry 1494 okay so i'm gonna guess the man is fourteen thousand then not, not that much but close Ten thousand two hundred. Uh, it's first yeah, place so almost 10, and then 10 times um more. Even the tenth place is still at four thousand five hundred, so mm. um, Harriet wouldn't have even it's made kind of it to the top ten in the in the male list. Um, and I have some interesting graphs in the paper. I, I encourage you to have a look um, about the distribution over different time periods when how many plants were named by researchers and how many of them were women. And it was only in the twentieth um, century, really, that women. Um, started or, or took part in, in naming species and before that it was all men um, that were attributed the naming rights to these plants 
It's it's quite weird because I mean when we're looking for these non-women scientists for the women at least mostly what we find is botanists because I mean the harder science so like anything molecular biology um chemistry anything lab work based physics of course and maths were just basically not accessible to women at all there's basically no women so botany was seen as the very female thing and it had this link to art as well so a a woman could draw the flowers and therefore also describe them but then at the same so like this is this is the place where the women should dominate because this was where they were kind of accepted compared to everything else and they're still so underrepresented but at the same time they weren't really allowed to explore um very much so they like discovering new things was not really women's um yeah yeah not really allowed for women so yeah yeah interesting yeah um so it's it's uh it just has some interesting figures of the the paper that we're linking also like it's close to impossible now for any female researcher to catch up because we have mapped out so many plant species that it's just really mm. hard to get four thousand five thousand plant species identified today you can see that in the chart even um that you have a massive drop um towards more modern times um in the number of species identified like we were but we will get them on the microbes let's do it let's make like (laughs) five times more microbes or like archaea let's start identifying those archaea and really um get some some i mean it doesn't have to be a female name it has to just be a female who gives them a yeah, name yeah, right yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah. it's not people who are n- or species that are named after people but it's researchers gender of the researchers who identified them i I'd, I'd quite like to have a genus named after me just like if anybody's don't say like, that and somebody see, will like take a stink bug or something disgusting and then suddenly it's named i'm so okay you. with that Stink bugs can defend themselves. That's cool. And you know, sometimes I'm stinky. Be, like it, it gets hot. I sweat. We all bug. sweat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be something fluffy. I don't want to be something like kind of meek. I want like something which has like some snappiness or like emits some foul odor or some foul like some venom or something. That would be quite fun. An animal that like, exists if, purely as feed to others. <laughs> <laughs> like like a spite animal. Like not even an animal. I don't really want an animal. I think um. Obviously, I would prefer something that can fix carbon, like something in the kind of plant algae world would be ideal, but I would also take like a bacteria. I don't know if I like viruses enough. Like, I mean, they're not real life. So, and like, obviously now, also like not feeling super pleasant towards viruses as a general group. I think they have also different naming schemes, so it's also not the same. <clears throat> I have not. Yeah, it's all like SPZ346 yeah, or something. Yeah. It's it's kind of R2D2 style. <laughs> Of naming. As if Elon yeah. Musk had named all of the viruses, which is a oh, common yeah. popular culture about? reference. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> woo. It's almost topical as well. That was only three days ago. I what was the name today. in the end? Um, X. Can you tell me that? No, no. Uh, uh, and yeah, an X, but some say it's the Greek letter it's for Kai. Uh, uh, or it's 10. Or 10. Then the AE special symbol. That's like an A and an E that's together. Ash. Yeah, that's 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 called Ash. So it could be Ash as a second and name. Then and then A-12. Archangel. Yeah, Archangel. It's that. That's with the Archangel. I, I think. I read somewhere that it's uh, that it just means Kyle. That you have like the 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 <laughs> key, the Greek letter key. Then you have the I sound from the A E, and then you have A twelve uh-huh. is L. The letter, the the twelfth letter of the alphabet is L. So it's Kyle, uh, <laughs> which is just like Kyle. <laughs> it's Kyle but, but Kyle. Yeah, but Kyle is like we're thinking K Y L E, but like Kyle also has this kind of like angelic sound to it as well, right? Yeah, 
I'm like, I'm all for weird names, but this kid sure thing, won't have Durham. it easy <laughs> on, on the name. But then again, this kid's going to be a multi-billionaire. Yeah, he or she <laughs> is going to be fine. <laughs> like dry the tears with money. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. anyway, that was Harriet Margaret Louisa Bollus, um, a South African botanist named the most plants, the, the, the woman who named the most plants in the world. Let's talk, talk, talk <laughs> about bias, bias, bias. I didn't check if we've already done this bias. Yeah, tell me if we've already done this bias. Um, I picked something on the need to act fast subcategory of the kind of bias wheel. And it's in the subcategory of to stay focused, we favor the immediate relatable things in front of us. And the one I chose is identifiable victim effect because that seems to be kind of relevant at this time of COVID. I don't think COVID, we have done that one specifically. I'm glad to hear that. Okay, so I'm going to do this quite quickly. The identifiable victim effect is basically the idea that we tend to have more sympathy and be more willing to aid um, people when we have a specific identifiable person that we're aiding mm. as opposed to a group. Um, and it's epitomized by a phrase that is... a according to what he attributed to Stalin, but they say commonly attributed to Stalin, which makes me think he didn't say it. And it's the phrase that a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a t statistic, um, which is basically like, yeah. So um, the, the really obvious example is if we see one individual suffering, it's easy for us to say, oh, poor Yoram, like he has bad hair. Let's create the Yoram Foundation to give Yoram better hair. Um, cut, so it looks nice. Yeah, and that's despite the fact that there's like 9,000 hipsters in Berlin who also have the same terrible hair as Yoram, but we don't care about them. We only care about Yoram because we can identify him as a victim. Um, yeah, so more more seriously um, on the page. They victim. Hopefully everybody understands that I'm a victim of bullying here, not of my bad haircut. <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, you aren't. It's the hair. The hair is the problem. Um, so the example they give on the Wikipedia page a bit more seriously is an example of Ryan White, who got HIV when he was 13 years old. And after his death, the US Congress passed the Ryan White Care Act, which then funded a whole lot of services for people living with AIDS. Um, and that kind of became a movement. And this is actually really common. I listen to some murder podcasts and it's quite common after like a murder. Again, generally like of a white pretty young female victim um, because we're all very biased um, but often this then brings about um, new acts so for example Amber Alert um, is for kidnapping victims and this was actually named after a girl called Amber so Amber Alert stands it's um, an acronym for something but it's actually named after a girl mm. called Amber who went missing and basically I think she ended up dying because the response was not fast enough. Um, and because of that, they now have rules how to deal with it. So it's kind of a similar thing. I think it's also really relevant um, to conservation. So there's this idea of having certain um, species or like examples which draw in the public. Uh, so one really obvious example is pandas, giant pandas for conservation. People love them. Um, the other is uh, like whales in Australia we always had this kind of you know anti-killing whales thing so whale like people care about whales um, they're very I don't know I guess they're human like 
um, so we want to give money for conservation if people talk about whales. But if you say, hey, I want to kill this like random stiger fauna, like some stupid little um, crustacean that lives in the depth of a cave that's being threatened by mining activity, that's not an identifiable victim as far as we just don't care about it. So usually um, we have these kind of charismatic organisms that draw in um, the, mm-hmm. the money. And that's, again, an issue why large crises, either environmental crises or humanitarian crises, even the COVID crisis now, it's very hard for us as humans to kind of deal with it when we think of like large problems. But if we see sort of an individual, if we can somehow have a personification or one individual, it's it's kind of helps us. And I think that's just like very um, a human thing. Yeah, anyway, so that's the identifiable victim <laughs> effect. Um, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Um, cool. Then, um, yeah, I it brought just it brought up for me a lot of examples of just like terrible things that I don't want to really mention here um, about how large numbers are just statistics and we care deeply about just indiv- uh, individual people or small numbers. So instead, let's move to the surprise yeah. new segment. I mean, <laughs> sorry, what? That always like from the conservation biology um, side that always really annoyed me that like people could get really invested in like a whale or like a nice fluffy numbat, um, which, yeah, very, very cute. But the reality is those species are not really environmentally important as far as yeah. there are many other problems. But Yeah, I think if, yeah, they, anyway. if they help to, to bring systemic change, then that's good. But I sometimes also observe... How very the, Machiavellian of you. Yeah, but sometimes I observe the, the, the fact that then they specifically try to save these animals. Um and so the large effects are still ignored and they suddenly like have the token species that's saved or that where there's more care taken towards mm. while all of the others in, in the same ecosystems, they are still dying pretty much from our activity um, because, yeah, they're not the, the, the poster species. So, um, yeah, it's I think it's an effect that can be used um, advantageous, advantageously. But uh, I, yeah, the cynical me says, like, unfortunately, that doesn't happen too often. <laughs> anyway. All right. Anyway. <laughs> so now for the surprise new segment, um, uh, which is really not that big of a surprise. I just asked uh, on Twitter for some listener questions like we did already on the podcast a couple of times. And I actually got a few nice questions. So we have something for the next weeks. And the first question that I want to um, answer here very briefly is from Apple Chu Yen Peng. Um, I hope I pronounce this correctly. At underscore Apple Chu on Twitter. She asks, uh, do trees still breathe without leaves in winter? Um, which is an interesting question because we know that um, plants um, perform something called evapotranspiration. So they suck up water f- through the root system, transport it up their stems, and then it's uh, taking part in photosynthesis where it's it's split and then um, the water is evaporated from the leaves uh, and that sucks up more water from the ground. And so you have, if you have a forest of trees, they um, have a massive influence on the groundwater level. Uh, if if they are actively growing, they are sucking up a lot of water from the ground, evaporating and releasing it into the atmosphere. And if you then harvest, for example, a commercial like a tree site and you cut down all of the trees, you change 
what happens to the groundwater. And the same happens in winter when the trees lose their leaves and all of them drop to the ground and uh, that do they do that to uh, stop drying out or to avoid drying out in winter. So deciduous trees, so those that drop their leaves every winter, they pretty much shut down their evapotranspiration. They don't really breathe um, water anymore. And also because they don't have leaves anymore for photosynthesis, they also stop breathing carbon dioxide and oxygen. Uh, evergreen trees, on the other hand, they don't do that. They continue um, to evapotranspire and also to breathe, like as in taking up carbon dioxide and releasing oxygen during the day and reverse in the, during the night. Um, and the whole thing... I guess there can still be some exchange through the stems, depending on what sort of stem it is. Yeah. So obviously something like thicker and woodier, it's more insulating, but... Yeah, it's not shut I mean, down to zero. Like, yeah, and if the stems are green, they, I mean, green things can also yeah. photosynthesize to a certain degree, but yeah. yeah. And this um, has a big uh, uh, ecological impact, the fact that trees drop the, their leaves. Um, this helps to replenish water resources in the ground during winter time so precipitation in winter times they refill underground water capacity so then in spring um there is a larger capacity for for pretty much the entire ecosystem to draw water from um so yeah i hope that answered your question um and keep them coming if you have another question like this or anything else send them to us uh through by email or through twitter instagram facebook wherever you find us you can ask us questions and we do our best to answer them here this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins this is where the fun Um, I want to give a shout out um, for anyone who's on Instagram. You should go and follow Brie Ann Abernathy. She's um, biochemist B at biochemist.b. And in the last couple of days or like, what are we up to? Maybe a week or more. She's been doing um, an embroidery every day and she's making a science alphabet. Um, and it, it's really, really cool. You get to choose what you want her to put for the next letter of the alphabet. So send in your suggestions. Um, I think they're up to Q now, which is a little bit of a problem. Um, <laughs> and then once she gets a few suggestions, you can then vote out of the top four which one you want her to embroider. And then, of course, you see um, the embroidery Oops, the next day. So she's got like... Um, E is for enzyme, S is, F is for flask, um, yeah, D was DNA, G was Golgi apparatus, um, yeah, lots of really cool stuff oh, um, and quite a wide range of of scientific topics. It's not just plant science, it's not just molecular plants, it's quite, uh, science is quite broad and it's, again, it's nice to watch, it makes me really happy, you get to be, like, you get to participate and then you get to see something really beautiful be made, so I can really recommend you go and check out her website, or uh, her Instagram, sorry. Yeah, um, that's, that's, that's really nice, I like people who do, like, long-term series to entertain, uh, yeah, entertain us pretty much, and, and do something I am entertained. pretty with the science. <laughs> Thank you, Brianne. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have something. I found an article um, on Nature. Uh, it's an opinion piece. Uh, actually, I should say maybe also the name and the author. I just wrote down some quotes. Um, terrible preparation, Yoram. Um, so <laughs> while I'm looking this up, I can tell you what it's about. It's about uh, the, uh, on the foreground, this article talks about the heritage of UCL, the 
University College London or something. Um, uh, so university in London um, <laughs> that uh, recently did an internal review and um, uh, found that the racist and eugenics fan Francis Galton is still represented quite a lot internally. There are like uh, seminar rooms and places Uh, named after him in the university and they sort of want to address this um, and this is taking uh, in, the, in the article that's called Want to do better science admit you're not objective um, by Angela Saini um, she talks about how important it is to uh, acknowledge as a researcher that we don't do research in a vacuum that we, we are not objective we are not uh, above politics or society that it, uh, that's, um, that is deeply a part of research as well and we have to acknowledge it and work with it And um, she has a, a couple of really good qu quotes in there that I sort of, um, yeah, I just had to copy them, copy them out. And um, yeah, I pretty much wanted to copy and paste the entire article because I, I quite liked uh, reading about this. Um, one of them is, for example, in failing to recognize that science can be political, the scientific community allows the resurrection of dangerous ideas. Acting as if theories, especially those about humans, exist in cultural or political vacuums is a ridiculous fallacy. Um, you sometimes see that that people say like, yeah, we're just um, objectively speaking, maybe it is good that we mm. in, in the current crisis that we don't take care of the elderly because like objectively speaking, there are a cost to society. And if you misuse the idea of um, objective scientific approaches to things that deeply affect humanity uh, on, uh, on a political or so, um, social level, um, yeah, it's, it's a fallacy. It's, it's very problematic uh, and gives rise to, to terrible ideas. And particularly whether there's people in a, in a position of like intellectual power claiming something is objective, it gives it more weight, right? It really suggests that they're saying things that have a scientific basis or even like some sort of higher claim, which, yeah, just it makes it worse. It's more dangerous when smart people people say dumb things or perceived smart people say dumb things. Yeah. Um, and she also mentions that there was a survey uh, survey uh, within UCL where they asked staff and students whether they, uh, the, whether they agree with the statement, we should separate science and politics. And this was much more agreed with um, in sciences and engineering than in social sciences and history, um, which also mm -hmm. shows there is this inherent bias in natural sciences and engineering um, where we think like science and politics are two separate separate things and there's a ton of examples that you can pull up from engineering or also like biology and science um, where there is a very close link to politics and we can't just ignore that um, and she ends the article with um, with the, a paragraph that I want to read here as well it says the best research is done not when we pretend that we are perfectly objective but when we acknowledge that we are not The UCL inquiry report rec recommends that students and staff be exposed to the history of eugenics and that students be encouraged to value the history of their own fields. I would go further. Scientists need both history and the social sciences to develop the intellectual tools to think critically about their research and how it affects society. This isn't just helpful, it's vital. And I, I, I really couldn't agree more with this. It's something that uh, bothered me a lot uh, during my active research time whenever I hear the stance of people where I say, like, we just do the sign 
points other people have to deal with the policy science of it, a, a side of it um, we are completely innocent we don't uh, or uh, uh, we don't take any responsibility what society does with it we are just doing the science um, and I think this is just a, an ignorant and blind approach to research and I really enjoyed um, the author's take on uh, on this issue I mean, I think to me, there's also another element there, which is that um, you're going to have, like, it's a university, it's it's there to teach people. Um, and within that cohort of people being taught, they are there are minorities. And if those minorities are existing in an environment which is praising somebody who thinks that they shouldn't exist or thinks that they are, I don't know, genetically inferior or whatever eugenics bullshit they think that wears on somebody like if you have to exist where people are praising somebody who thinks you shouldn't exist like that's not that's giving you an immediate disadvantage and it, it it's it can't be ignored it's it i mean yeah yeah I, there are studies on this i we can try and find some and maybe link them in there but i mean this is this is so important to have representation but like of the right people and ideas not to have representation of like racists and bigots and that yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. check out the article wow. um it's called uh it's called want to do better science admit you're not objective by angela's uh saini published in nature on the 9th of march and speaking of not all things being created equal no that was not even a, a great segue <laughs> um I, <laughs> I wanted to make a comment about something which i saw again on the nature briefing um and it's that there's something called Sight.ai, and maybe some of you have already heard of it. It's an artificial intelligence tool, which is trying to look at research and tell users not just the citation count, but whether the citations are good citations or bad citations. So it's now currently being used for COVID and specifically COVID preprints, um, according to the Nature Briefing. But the idea is that if science is wrong, sometimes it can still get cited in order to refute the scientific claim. And this is kind of a problem we have in the scientific community because if you find something that um, opposes another idea, often you want to say, despite what was previously shown, I found this opposite thing. But there are also some ideas that constantly get opposed and therefore are likely to be wrong. And they can be wrong just because um, the study happen to find the wrong answer but they can also be wrong because they're fabricated or because they're not like properly conducted experiments and so the problem with citation counts um is that this can it doesn't really differentiate between the two if we continue to cite studies in order to contradict them um and of course if we don't contradict them they stay out there without being contradicted which is a whole different problem um so i've, I've had this discussion with um a previous boss sort of saying well if we don't contradict this study then the study just stands as it is. And he was like, well, no, everybody in the community knows that this study is bullshit. And I was like, well, I didn't know it. And I'm in this community, but I didn't know it because I'm young and I haven't been to the conferences and I haven't talked to all of the people. And the current thing is that we're just not mentioning the study. So, um, yeah, basically, this is this is now a tool which is saying we should be 
commenting on whether citations are good or bad. And I think it could be quite an interesting thing um, to come into the science. And that's like another point is that nowadays when we're talking about science and it reaching the public, we're looking at altmetric scores as well, which is kind of how much impact a piece has. And this is kind of the same idea that should be raised is that altmetrics can be really, really high if a piece is controversial. Mm -hmm. So just because a scientific score has really high altmetric, scientific study sorry has really high altmetrics doesn't mean it's a better study it might mean that every single person has like tweeted at it and opened it and commented it to say this is rubbish we should ignore this so it's kind of a similar um thing that we need a better way to judge quality and less good quality um works it's interesting to see that arrive in science as well because it's in sort of journalism a problem for a long time that uh, they have even sometimes uh, the ranking on their main page about like the most controversial articles where they have the most discussion on mm. it or the most like thumbs up and thumbs down happening on it um, and this drives traffic and therefore there's an incentive to to write these things in journalism uh, and in science it's not about writing th controversial things on purpose But still, it gets like it gets more attention than it necessarily deserves, and um, mm. yeah, it's it's it can be it can be problematic. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, science would get the public's attention more if we were more willing to exaggerate and lie about our subject in order to make kind of these um, clickbait yeah. <laughs> statements. <Yeah. laughs> Um, I have something that I want to mention that's from gris.org um, uh, an article about an interesting observation um, because now uh, nobody is flying right and we're all staying at home we're not drinking coffee from single use cups and we're not driving our cars to work shouldn't the carbon emissions now be down a lot because one narrative is that if we all do our part in reducing our own carbon footprint, we can make a massive change, right? If we, if we do local holidays and if we don't use our cars and if we buy reusable cups, then everything will be right. And now the current situation is a great example where this is sort of happening involuntarily. Um, in Berlin, I just saw the number that the, the passenger number is down to 5% of the original passenger number for Berlin airports. Um, and I think mm -hmm. it's similar in, in other places as well. So there's just a massive reduction in air traffic. Um, in fact, one of the two airports in Berlin will be shut down for at least two months. Maybe it will be extended permanently because the no big one will open. But they're shutting it down pre prematurely because there's just no there are no more passengers to use it. Um, mm. So um, we should we should see a big uh, reduction in emissions, but we don't. Um, we only see about 5.5% reduction globally in the emissions. 95% of carbon uh, emissions are still happening, um, despite the fact that everybody's staying at home. And if you look at a number where they come from, it's pretty obvious. Um, 40% of uh, emissions are still heating el electricity because we use uh, carbon-based uh, fuels uh, for for that. So this doesn't change. Maybe it, does, it even goes up a little bit when people are more at home and cook with electricity and so on. Uh, industry and agriculture are also not affected. We still produce um, our agricultural goods with diesel engines and tractors and so on. So this, this didn't change. 
And the whole point of this um, analysis of the situation is that focusing on individual action doesn't help much. It helps at best if everybody shuts down to like almost 100% their consumption. Um, it shuts down to about 5% globally. So we need systemic global action. We need to stop burning fossil fuels for energy production. We need to stop using diesel engines for agriculture. We need to stop high energy industri industries uh, on non-renewable energy. Um, and I just found that an interesting observation using the current situation to look at, um, yeah, to, to sort of debunk this idea that if we all if we all just do our little part this will be enough and we don't have to change the people uh, who are running the countries and and economies uh good news should we have some good news that was very depressing um <laughs> sorry but you should still do your part and you should still think about it but also talk to your um like vote for the right people yeah, exactly yes yeah. Uh, good news, there was something published uh, oh, last month. It's getting old now. No, it's two months ago. I'm very behind on this. Um, you know Tasmanian devils? Uh, yeah, these are they, aren't they extinct? Uh, aren't they this? No, that's the tiger. Uh, yeah. So Tasmanian devils is actually a um, Looney Tunes cartoon character, yeah. which is like a Tasmanian devil. But um, also like the, in reality, the they're. The video game character Crash Bandicoot is also a Tasmanian devil. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah, so maybe Crash Bandicoot looks a little bit more like what a real thing is. It looks like a quite quite a small bear, but like uglier and meaner. And they're very, very aggressive. And then also in the last, I guess, 20 years or even more, they've been having a problem with facial tumors. So they basically have um, these cancerous growths on their face, which, let's be honest, only makes them uglier. Um, and it's actually transmitted from one to the other um, so it's it's communicable. And this is something that's really been threatening the Tasmanian devil population and there's been concerns that they will go extinct um, because of this this contact and these facial tumors because ultimately they get to the point where they, they prevent the Tasmanian devils from really being able to live a normal life and, and you know, it kills them. Um, so the good news is that there's been some work which has found that there can be immunotherapy, which basically gives the Tasmanian devils immunity, um, and this will then help fight the facial tumor disease, and the Tasmanian devils might actually be okay in the end, which is really, really nice news, Yay. because even though they're ugly and mean, they're a unique, special little <laughs> creature from Australia. Um, there's nothing like them in the world, so it's nice that they don't die <laughs> yeah that's that that's good if they if species don't die i'm in favor of that it looks like, like a small angry cat i would say an angry bird cat <laughs> bear cat i don't know <laughs> i also have something um biological like um non-plant species related um i'm it, it went around a little bit uh on on the interwebs recently there's this um short i think three four minute uh video um about a little remote controlled hummingbird spy cam from and from a pbs show uh and yeah it's, they film monarch butterflies with it in their natural ha uh, habitat and the cool thing about this is that they can't fly in there with like a regular drone this would disturb these butterflies um from like noise and wind creation and so on so they just can't fly in there with a regular drone so instead they constructed this tiny hummingbird shaped drone um, 
with just two um, propellers and it's very safe. They even show that uh, some butterflies sort of land on, on the grills on top of the propellers and are unharmed by it. And it just makes a very uh, beautifully shot um, little piece about these monarch butterflies that all cluster together in a massive swarm on trees where they sort of take a break and reheat and, and uh, capture some sun rays before they all start flying off. Um, and it's just like very beautiful imagery. So if you need um, a three-minute break from everything and want to just look at uh, uh, an artificial hummingbird filming monarch butterflies, um, this is the right video for that. I have some other kind of good news, um, an article that came out hey, much more recently in Natcoms, and this is about uh, malaria and fighting malaria. So we've talked about malaria previously on the blog because you can use a plant product, artemisinin, um, to fight malaria. It's actually um, artemisinin combinatorial therapy is the drug of choice to, to fight malaria or sorry, to treat it. Um, but there's now some recent research that shows that a certain microsporidian, which is kind of a small unicellular fungus-like um, organism, actually impairs the mosquito from being able to transmit the plasmodium, which is what causes the malaria in the first place. So this is like an early stage. They found that when the um, mosquito is infected with this fungus-like thing, it's no longer able to transmit um, the disease-causing um, organism, but obviously more research needs to be done. But it's it's quite good news because malaria is still quite deadly, um, especially to children in um, Africa. So, yeah, it's a cool nice. thing. I have two shout-outs that I um, briefly want to do. First out is to Nathan Howard on Twitter at uh, Nath, S-N-H, um, who took up an idea that you actually presented, right, last week? Yeah. Um, the pockets. A couple of weeks back now. What were they called? Didn't they have like a special name? It's just eight, 18th century pockets, basically. Yeah, this idea that you strap pockets on top of your clothes if your clothes don't have pockets. And um, yeah, he decided to sew some and uh, yeah, created just two functional pockets for trousers that don't have any. We link um, his tweet below there with uh, photos of the thing that he created. It's really nice. They look really yeah, cool. I'm, and also, I feel like now I'm an influencer <laughs> because I said something. I'm either an influencer or some sort of dictator, I would say, because like I commanded it and thus it was done. And, <laughs> and my other... A godlike creature, maybe. <laughs> okay, shut up now. <laughs> shut up, Tegan. My, my other thing um, <laughs> is just uh, the combination of a friend of mine that I like and bubble tea that I like uh, came together as in my friend uh, friend created um, a bubble tea themed card game as it's live on Kickstarter now and I just found it too cute not to share it here um, it's just a two player game you try to create three cups of bubble tea uh, where you have more bubbles in your tea cup than your opponent um, and there's some more rules to that to make it a little bit more exciting um, it's fairly cheap uh, and yeah, just have a look at it if, if you want to see very cute illustrations for the bubble tea and maybe support it if you want to. But um, I, I wasn't asked to say any of this. So it's just I, qu I quite enjoy bubble tea and cute drawings of bubble tea in games. Shameless plugging there. Yeah. Um, did I talk about sea bunnies before? No. Oh, I feel like maybe I did. But if I didn't, um, everybody go and Google sea bunnies. 
It's a kind of mollusk. It's basically like a sort of sea sluggy thing. I don't know. Yeah. But it looks like a little bunny. Yeah, I don't know if so, you talked um, about it. I think it. I did May- mention it before. Maybe you mentioned it to me. Uh, maybe you mentioned it on a podcast anyway. In any case, we're going to put another picture of sea bunnies in the podcast because every time I see them, they make me happy. It's just, it's pretty much the best creature that has ever existed. You know, that's what I want. I want sea bunnies to be named after <laughs> me. I want a new <laughs> genus of sea bunny. Like, I mean, this is a specific... Um, species called Yoruna or Joruna Parva. But I think they could be like a Tegan. It's almost sound, it's almost named after me. Yeah. Also I kind of want a pet sea bunny. Do you think they'd be happy in captivity or it would be sad for I them? I mean what animal really is happy in captivity? Cats. Cats are happy. Yeah. yeah because they <laughs> pretend not that they're not in, cap- I mean, in captivity. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they feel like we've got the humans in captivity. I mean, there's always <laughs> this thing about cats, how we domesticated dogs and cows, but then cats domesticated themselves because they wanted to, like, have warmth and eat rats. So yeah. that's always, I'm kind of like, well, maybe cats like it, but I might just be kidding myself because I love cats. I have a cat fact. I also have a small rant. Um, we can end <laughs> on. <laughs> the rant is very small. Um <laughs> So Jim Bredenstein on Twitter, and I think he actually might be like the head or somewhere up near the top of NASA, um, tweeted something that NASA is excited to work with Tom Cruise on a film aboard the space station. And he followed it up and I'm going to keep on. I'm reading here. We need popular media to inspire a new generation of engineers and scientists to make NASA's ambitious plans a reality. So I have several issues with this. <laughs> Firstly, no, we absolutely do not. <laughs> Secondly, if we did, it wouldn't be Tom Cruise. <laughs> Thirdly, we have enough problems here on Earth. Can we still please do that? And fourthly, like, didn't Amazon just release a new, like, Picard generation of, like, Star... Not Star Wars, Star yeah. Trek? Like, surely if I want to see some geezer run around in space, I want to see Dr. X go into space. I don't want to watch Tom Cruise go into space. So <laughs> my tolerance for space exploration is always very very low and i always try to look for things that make me more pro space like thinking oh yeah it's worthwhile that we sink like a shit ton of money into looking for the next planet that humans can screw up instead of actually trying to fix this current planet but tom cruise is not the way to get me engaged like tom cruise is the opposite of the way to and does Tom Cruise still have so much draw power? Like, is, is the that Mission really... The Impossible films are wildly <sighs> successful. And I think after the recent things, like the, in the last movie, he learned how to pilot a helicopter to do helicopter stunts, and they were insane. And I think the only logical step for him to, <sighs> to up the ante is to go to space. Crash the space because station. He, and then he also doing a new Top Gun movie so he can fly jet planes again. So he pretty much has maxed out the craziness on earth and the lower atmosphere so now he needs to go to space just for his character arc his like real life character arc but i agree Um, tom cruise is a very problematic person (laughs) and spending a lot of resources um on on filming an entertainment (laughs) thing on a space station when you can like it's absolutely possible to do convincing space stuff on on the uh, on ground um you've seen like in gravity at other movies they they didn't fly to space to shoot these things on location they filmed this like on in studios and with yeah, yeah, CGI. Exactly. you don't actually physically need to go to space and also like we already know from our previous podcast that like 
Arabidopsis needs to be in space. Like we need to spend plants and plants in space. We can't. We can't have both. Like that's. Spa- I, I know Tom Cruise is a very small man, but that's like three or four Arabidopsis plants at least. <laughs> the space that he's taking up, and we could send those three or four Arabidopsis plants instead. So why don't we just? Uh, I know it's really cruel to make ad hominem and attacks, but like, I don't have a lot of sympathy for this cause. <laughs> um. On a related pop culture rant, um, I've been watching Killing Eve recently, which I love. Um, it's, I don't know, it's about like a, an, an agent in the MI6 who gets obsessed with a female serial killer who's a psychopath. And the female serial killer is, okay, she's a psychopath, so she's not like a really positive role model, but she's really bratty. She's really funny. Um, she's quite violent and she has great dress sense and I love her and I want to be like her. Um... And I told somebody I was talking to, you should definitely watch this show. And he responded back, like, this is terrible. I don't like this show. James Bond is a real um, <laughs> is a real uh, MI6 or whatever, a real spy. <laughs> and I was just like, wait, <laughs> James Bond is your defense? Like, this is... So I, I immediately responded with, I hate you, you're stupid. <laughs> and then like, that's the end of my conversation. Everybody should go and watch Killing Eve and then write me a list of reasons why Villanelle is better than James Bond. <laughs> that's your homework class. Um, I, yeah, I wasn't even aware of the existence of this show. Like, I'm just seeing the cover. It's, it's, it's is so that good, the lady yeah. that's in, like, the Doctor show? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's Sandra O. Oh, so she was in Crazy Anatomy, which is what Yoram's referring yeah, also to. Um, so she's the, she's like the good guy kind of at the start. I mean, it gets all confusing. And then Villanelle is like the evil woman. But um, I'll send you a clip. There's a clip where somebody comes up and asks her to take a photograph because she has a really stunning outfit. She's like, can I get a photo of you for the Instagram? And Villanelle's just like, no, of course not. Get a real life. <laughs> and she's like stares her dad. I, I don't know. I'm not telling it, but it's she's she's charming, and I want this to be her. This is the segment where Tegan retells TV show scenes <laughs> in a bad way, and basically tells you all that my my aim in life is to either be a godlike figure or a psychopath, possibly both. <laughs> like, who knows? And then another thing, I was like, I want to be her, and the person's like, Yeah, but surely, like, not a psychopath. Surely, like. With a with a with a big heart, and I was like, "Well, the murders would be really awkward if you were not a psychopath." So I guess like, <laughs> like you want to be a psychopath, there, right? Anyway, I will stop retelling that. Like, <laughs> I'm done. I have cat facts. Yeah, let's 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 do let's do the cat facts. Cat fact. You want to do your cat fact first? I'm not burning my cat fact if you have one. I'm using that then for the next uh, episode. Um, mine is less of a cat fact and more of a cat picture, which as always... It's good I enough. mean, again... The bar is very just... low that we are having here. And this podcast for cat fact, pretty much anything that's about again, an animal go through as a cat fact. I was telling a friend like, oh yeah, I made like your arm dress up for the podcast. And they were like, wait for the podcast for like a non-visual medium I'm like yes that's kind of what we do in our podcast like we just have like okay so um my cat fact and i'm using like little inverted thingies here um it's from sad and it was sent to me by my friend vanessa she's really great at sending me cat facts and it's just a collection of pictures 
having of people with their cats and then they've got like kind of cardboard where they've drawn a dinosaur body so you've got like a cat head <laughs> and a dinosaur body um and there's many of them um disappointingly i would say some of them are not cats some of them are dogs which made me very very sad um but there's a lot of great yeah. cats with dinosaur bodies so if you're feeling sad or lonely either go and check those out or go find yourself an actual cat yeah, dogs are really sad Take and useless. It. yeah <laughs> yeah I, i'm not happy about the dogs but like i would say four-fifths of the images are cats so there's like three or four dogs trying to ruin it for everybody yeah. but yeah Insane. and if you have a cat make it a dinosaur <laughs> why not <laughs> friends friends don't let friends have dogs <laughs> <laughs> Very driving my home. Keeps on my anti dog stance here. <laughs> my housemate keeps on doing that thing where a dog comes and she's like, oh, isn't it cute? I'm just like, no. <laughs> like, it would be cute if it was a like, cat, unpopular yeah. opinion. And then she kind of looks at me like I'm a psychopath. Yeah, I still have to meet a dog that I yeah. care so about. <clears throat> um, <laughs> there goes all the sympathies <laughs> of our listeners towards us. <laughs> Guys, we, we really like dogs. Dogs are great. Um, yeah. Um, if you want to get in contact with and shout at, shout at us for not liking dogs, <laughs> you can find us on Twitter. You can talk to me and shout at me for not liking dogs. I'm at Plants Pipettes on Twitter. On Instagram and on Facebook, it's usually me. That's at Plants and Pipettes. And we have a website, plantsandpipettes.com, where we don't talk about dogs. We talk about plant science. Um, about twice a week, we publish new articles about the cool things happening in the world of plant science. So go and check that out. Yeah, and Yoram does really cool pictures for that. So if you want to see that, go and look at his pretty pictures. And the thing is, if you recommend something for us to write a blog about, you're basically demanding that Yoram draw an image for you. So that's a really good it's way a to get a complicated free commission image scheme. Yeah, the commission is you pay nothing and you give us ideas. You pay with your ideas and then... I get to choose what Yoram draws anyway. But <laughs> we all win. Yeah, I recently I to had to, to draw uh, an, a jellyfish and that was one of the hardest things. Um, not because they're so complicated really? in their structure. It's just they have so little contrast and contours that um, it just looks like a mess every time you try. They look very pretty in pictures, <laughs> but in drawings, it's at least I struggled. Um, so please no jellyfish I'm papers. I'm going to put... <laughs> I'm going to put that image of a jellyfish on Facebook and Instagram and get you all to vote how well you think your arm <laughs> did. And if he doesn't get more than 80%, then um, we'll make him draw it again. <laughs> Yay. 80% is a pass mark. Looking forward to that. <laughs> because honestly, if he doesn't learn, like if we don't tell him when he does badly, he's never going to get better. <laughs> and incidentally, I tried to draw some things for the blog last week and it was hard and I did not do well. So... <laughs> Honestly, I salute uh, you, sir. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, today, I, like, <laughs> uh, I learned a word from the book, uh, The Meaning of Liff. Um, if you get a compliment and you feel awkward about it, it's an oshbosh situation. Um, what? Yeah, uh, The Meaning of Liff is a book from Douglas Adams and somebody else uh, about things that don't have names and they give them names. Like the awkward feeling you have when somebody compliments you and you don't really know how to respond. This feeling has now the name Oshbosh. 
And there's lots of things like that. There's a name for a little piece of paper you put under a table that's um, not stable. Um, Mm-hmm. And lots of things like that. Um, I recently listened to an episode of the podcast uh, Rules of Three, where and- Andrew Hunter Murray from the Fish Podcast, uh, no such thing as a Fish Podcast. Uh, he was a guest there, and he and the guest always brings like a piece of comedy, and then three hosts talk about this spe- uh, specific piece of comedy. He brought this book, The Meaning of Live, and um, they are very interesting things there. That's very like. <laughs> A weird tangent now at the end of the show where I actually want to say. Um, <laughs> and you're also reading that other book that you have to be reading right now for important for and secret, secret reasons. Yeah? thing that's like hopefully <laughs> next week we can tell you more about it. Um, I think it's really clear what it is by now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you can rate us on iTunes. Please do that. You can rate us on any other podcast platform where you can rate us. Um, I think there are m- more, but mostly... Go to iTunes, please. Um, you can always send us um, your questions, comments, feedback, anything uh, through the various different means of contact. And mm. opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross, as always. And I think <laughs> that's it, right? I did not forget anything. Or sh- should we talk yeah, about another like podcast that I listened about too? <laughs> <laughs> you could actually send me the links to those podcasts that three one sounds quite interesting yeah unfortunately most of the time it's just three dudes talking about comedy of another dude um that's my only complaint about this <laughs> um, but apart from that if the guest is cool and andrew hunter murray is a cool guest um it's a very enjoyable listen and it gives you different perspectives on pieces of comedy that you know or, or maybe don't even know already um so yeah that's cool it's uh, the rules of rule of three i think anyway goodbye Talk to you next week. (laughs) Goodbye, guys.